Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Like, for example, there's a, there's a wonderful experiment that I wrote about um, in the Culture Code where if you have a conversation with a stranger, the stranger comes up to you. You're on, you're on a platform. You've got your cell phone, right? And the stranger comes up and says, hey, can I borrow your cell phone? You'll say no, like 98% of the time. If the stranger comes up and says, I'm so sorry about the rain, can I borrow your cell phone? You'll say yes, 400% more often, which is kind of nuts. We won't notice it, but we'll just feel slightly more warmly toward that person. And we will literally hand them our cell phone 400% more often because they had a behavior, they expressed a sympathetic observation about the weather. And that made us kind of bond with them. And that's exactly the level at which culture happens. It's like under your conscious radar, but you are constantly, constantly tuning in to the fact, am I connected? Am I not? Do I share a future? Do I not? These people care about me or do they not? Do I have a voice here? And when you get a clear signal that the group cares, you respond. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Dan, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's good to be back here with you. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. You are in that rare group of guests who has been here now three times. So I think you're like, you know, one of 10 guests who've managed to accomplish that, which to me, that always says a whole hell of a lot about somebody's work when we have them back multiple times. So we had you, you know, right after you wrote Talent Code, um, right after your Culture Code, and now you have a new book out called The Culture Playbook, all of which we will get into. But I wanted to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that influenced and shaped what you ended up doing with your life? and career. Wow. Well, I want to back up and ask if, do I get at, at Saturday Night Live, you get a, like a jacket if you host it a certain number of times. I'm just wondering if anything like that could be in store for me so I can. End we should do that. We really should. We should actually get a jacket. I mean, I can't afford to get you jackets, but we should do that. <laughs> oh, just a picture. Um, no, I, I think one of the, one of the things it's, it's funny. I ended up dedicating the book to my father who passed away around the time it came out. And when I sort of got away from that and, and thought about my, my interest in group in what makes great groups, um, and really realized that, that his approach to life, he was a kind of a relentless, uh, connector, this amazing sort of, you know, communication magician, really, and his ability to connect deeply with people and, and then really asking them great questions and, I really saw the power of that in my own kind of ecosystem there through him. And so it ended up being um, kind of there. There's so many moments in the book where he's sort of present um, in a way. And and I guess my mom also brought um, she has this tremendous uh, sense of fun and uh, joy in life, which is also very present and, pl- and this playfulness that is part of what it's like to be in a, in a great group or a great culture. And they both embodied that in really vivid ways. So they're sort of threaded throughout. Yeah. 
You know, there's something I, I think about a lot. You just mentioned that, you know, you lost your father right around the time that this book came out. And I remember we had Alex Benayan here uh, and he actually had his book come out at the same time that, uh, you know, he lost his father. And I remember him telling me, he said, people think that I'm dealing with a book launch while navigating the loss of my father. But he said, in reality, I'm dealing with losing my father while navigating a book launch. Mm-hmm. And you know, I just turned 44 yesterday. And so naturally, you start to think about things like this as you get older. Um, and I have always wondered, like, how somebody actually processes that kind of grief without losing their mind. Like, how do you, you know, f- find yourself on solid ground again? Because I, we all know this is going to happen to us. Right. It's something that is a part of life. And yet, I don't think there's a self-help book that can prepare you for this. Like I, yeah, to me, this is one of those experiences that no person can understand uh, until they've gone through it. But I'm just wondering, like, how in the world do you navigate that? While at the same time, now you have, you know, your next book come out. So you have this like big accomplishment at the same time you have this tremendous loss. Yeah, no, it's definitely a sort of a, a roller coaster ride. And there's no, <clears throat> there is, as you say, there's no, no blueprint, no playbook, but, but there were some pieces of wisdom that people shared with me as, as, as I went through it, um, that I continue to sort of use and share. And one of them is that, um, even when somebody goes away, the conversation doesn't necessarily stop. It sort of keeps going in some, sometimes some deeper ways, like all the people you lose in your life are people you still are kind of in contact with in a way. And, and I'm not talking about in a, in a sort of seance <laughs> Ouija board way. I'm talking right, about right. just sort of in the patterns of thought and behavior and in the questions you ask yourself and in the things you might observe, um, they're still sort of really sort of strangely present um, in the world. You might be able to call them up on the phone and, and chat in real life, but there is this, um, this presence that doesn't, that doesn't go away. Um, and, and that it just takes a lot of time. I mean, there's no matter how old you are when you lose your your parents, there's there's it is there's there's nothing like it, and there's a loneliness that's after it that is uh it's really profound. And and having some support, especially with like siblings, to go through it ends up being really important. And but yeah, that that conversation has always been a source of um kind of comfort and uh, and 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 sort of it, it keeps it keeps things spinning forward. It gives gives a little little energy toward to certain areas that didn't exist before. Well, you know, I've asked a number of people when they've been forced to either confront parental mortality or their own mortality, depending on whether it happens early in life or late in life, how it changes the decisions they make about how they're going to live their life going forward. And I wonder if, um, you know, this has shed any light on that for you. Yeah, it does. It gives you that, it gives you just bigger perspective. It gives you, there's a, I don't know. Our modern world is really good at giving us a lot of things to do all the time. And, um, mm-hmm. I think the older you get and the more you, the more sort of perspective granting events, let's just call them those, um, those, those PGEs, <laughs> um, those perspective granting events, um, the better you get at saying no to certain things. Um, and I, I, we're not here to talk about other people's uh, work, but there's a book by Oliver Berkman out right now that if anybody, your audience might mm-hmm. be interested, it's called yeah. Four Thousand Weeks. Um, it's about the yeah. power of limits. Um, it's about the power of really recognizing mortality. The title is The Number of Weeks You Get in Your Life. And and re- the power of really seeing that clearly is, uh, you know, it connects to stoicism, obviously, and a lot of other stuff. But um, I think there's a great sort of freedom and liberation that can come with getting out of the fast flow and in carving out moments to pause. I think most people who are sort of flourishing these days are good at pausing. They're pausing athletes um, because in this in this world, this river of a life that is just speeding up and, and more change and more instability and more um, information just flowing all the time, the ability to step out of the river onto a rock and stop and really stop and really look around. Um, you know, in fact, I was, I was joking with a, with a friend the other day, this, this new book, the culture playbook should be called the culture pause book because it sort of came out of that idea that, Hey, if you pull it back as an individual, as a group to really see what's going on, um, there's a tremendous productivity and a tremendous power in that. While you're growing up, did your parents encourage you to pursue any particular career paths? 
Not, you know, not, not really. There were just sort of these natural pathways available, uh, because of the sort of ecosystem in which we lived. I grew up in Alaska. Um, we moved there when I was three. My dad was a physician. And so that was obviously, um, very available, uh, cause all the people we knew were, were doctors and, and in that sort of, in that sort of line of work. And, um, it wasn't until uh, I got to college and sort of paused and pulled back. And right before I, I got accepted to medical school, I was about to go to medical school because I thought that was the right path and just sort of paused and pulled back and took a deeper look at what I was, where I really wanted to explore, what really lit me up, um, what, what I, the impact I wanted to have. And so that got me away from conventional medicine and into this area of journalism and, and researching performance and looking at the science beneath performance, all the stuff that sort of looks like magic, but it's not really magic. So whether that's a, a culture or an individual, that, um, that, that, that resident echo of, um, sort of science, I mean, you know, uh, my my dad happened to be a radiologist, so he was looking at x-rays all the time. So I grew up walking in his office and seeing x-rays of stuff and got the knowledge that underneath everything, there is something else. There are things that are causing things. There are bones. <laughs> and so I sometimes uh, have made that, um, that loose connection to my own work because basically I'm trying to walk around with an x-ray machine and looking at, oh, there's, there's Michael Jordan, there's Mozart. Uh, there's the incredibly talented groups and people. Well, let's x-ray them. What's going on? It looks like magic, but it's not really magic. There's a there there. There's a thing there. There's something to understand there. And that's what, um, that's kind of what drives me. Yeah. Well, I want to, you know, revisit just a, a few moments from the talent code because I think it'll make a perfect segue into talking about uh, culture in general. And one thing that stayed with me from our conversation, I never forgot this because I've requoted it in numerous conversations. And I remember asking you about prodigies and how I you know, was thinking to myself, why the hell did my parents make me practice for 10,000 hours when I got good at something? And you said, those are the kids who actually end up being really screwed up. And uh, so I, I want to revisit a clip that uh, came from our conversation with Dan Pink and kind of hear what you have to say about this with regards to sort of cultivating talent for the future of work and educating people. Take a listen. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. 
And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. What these systems tend to reward is respect for authority and giving the authority figure what he or she wants neatly and on time. And I think what it does is that it inculcates this what you have in elementary and secondary education is you sort of have the good kids and the bad kids in a way. The good kids are compliant. The bad kids are defiant, but nobody's engaged. And the reason for that is that it's a system built, to, it's a system built on control and control leads inevitably only to those two kinds of behaviors, compliant behavior or defiant behavior. So, you know, even things like in elementary, even elementary classrooms where the teachers focus on and this is not a knock on teachers at all, but but it just sort of in their professional training, they focus on, quote unquote, classroom management. So what do you make of that? I mean, as somebody who wrote a book about talent and how we cultivate world class performers, what is the future of education, particularly to prepare us for the kinds of cultures that we are going to be working in? Yeah, I love it. Well, and I say this is the parent of a of a, a woman who's just doing her student teaching um, to be an elementary school teacher. And so this, this conversation is, um, and I'm also on the board, I was on the board of our local Montessori school here. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more with Dan's point there. Systems want stuff, right? They're, every system wants something. And his point that systems want control, compliance, obedience. And that model, I mean, we really have to remember that that model, our model of education was built during an age where work was largely a simple linear process of executing some authority's plan. You wanted to build Mr. Ford's automobile. Um, you wanted to, uh, you know, uh, harvest the corn. Um, very straightforward, simple, A to B to C to D um, sort of a linear uh, jobs, linear processes. And in a world of linear, clear, top-down processes, it kind of makes sense to design a system for command and control, right? That, that's kind of what we're trying to produce. The problem is that there's this massive mismatch between that system and the world we face now. The world we face now is, is anything but um, sort of simple, linear A to B to C to D. There's, there's an interesting distinction, I think, that needs to be made between there's two kinds of problems in the world. Problems that are complicated, where there is a linear solution, where we can build th something and it will always turn out if we follow the steps, we will get the result. A I, could, I could give you the instructions on building a Maserati engine. And if you did them right and had the resources, if you followed the instructions, you would build one and you would have one. That type of system is complicated, right? But there's another one that's a different category, complex. Complex problems and systems, as you probably know, are ones that change as you interact with them. They're not the engine of a Maserati, they're raising a kid, right? They're, they're, they evolve and change and shift all the time. And the problems that we are seeking to solve in the work world and the future of work, we've got a lot of the complicated stuff figured out. We can build systems for that. We can build AI for that. But when it comes to really complex issues that require human intelligence, that require groups to do two things, they have to stay together and change at the same time change their relationship, change their roles, change their orientation to each other. And, you know, we saw some, some really vivid examples of the best and the worst of that, you know, even the, during this recent COVID epidemic. You know, going into it, if you had to bet on, a, on, a, on a, an a industry that would struggle, you'd say restaurants were going to have a hard time because hard to have a restaurant when no one can come into the restaurant. 
But what you found, and I'm sure there are neighborhood, there are restaurants like this in your neighborhood. What you found is that certain restaurants were able to kind of change and adapt, and all of a sudden they're doing curbside and doing family meals for one price and changing the way that they cook and building a ghost kitchen and adding an app and reorganizing themselves in real time. There's a neighborhood in my, there's a restaurant in my neighborhood called Edwin's. And I saw the guy the other day and he said, we're doing way more revenue than we did uh, pre-pandemic. Um, and, and it really, we were able to reorganize on the fly. Now that's complex that you're changing the relationship and a command and control world that produces command and control people and, and command and control classrooms is hopelessly mismatched for a world where we're going to need to change. And the other visual, I think, for the future of work is, you know, the old future of work would be sort of like, I don't know, like a, like a, like a football team, you know, run the play. You're, uh, we're going down the field and we're, we have certain plays we want to run and you have to fit your role and you have to practice the move and do the move and succeed at the move and perform the move over and over again and then we'll be successful. Well, it shifted. This is way more like a pickup basketball game now where we don't know who's going to handle the ball. We don't know what the play is going to be. We're going to have to read and react and kind of be ready to change. If, if the defense does something else, we've got to do something else. Or maybe even a better metaphor is we have to be like a like a flock of birds going through a forest. There's going to be some parts we're going to know where to go. Some parts we're going to hit this huge tree and we're going to have to reorganize and go around it and find a different way of aligning and flying together so that we can survive rather than just run into the tree. So it's a this complexity, this landscape of complexity that we're working in now makes certain skills obsolete obedience and compliance, I would say, and, and, and valorizing those things and training for those things. And it makes other skills like teamwork, creativity, culture, building a sense of purpose, creating a sense of shared vulnerability and skin in the game, um, creating a sense of belonging. Those are now like non-negotiables. Those are like the, the reading, writing, and arithmetic of, of this complex world. Connecting, uh, navigating and and uh, and and sharing, really. Yeah. Well, there's a quote from Stephen Collar's book, The Art of Impossible. He said, back in 2002, the Partnership for 21st Century Learning, a nonprofit educational coalition that included everyone from executives at Apple, Cisco, and Microsoft to experts from the National Education Association and to the U.S. of Department of Education, was charged with determining which skills our children need to thrive in the 21st century. The old answer, of course, was the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. The new answer, the four C's, creativity, critical thinking, collaboration, cooperation. And I've been writing an article about this. And one of the things that I realized when it comes to critical thinking is that mistaking information for knowledge actually prevents us from cultivating our critical thinking capacities. And, you know, that is largely what I see as one of our big challenges, um, you know, particularly in a world where we're just overloaded with information, you know, people are just consuming endlessly. So there's a sort of idea that consumption equates to knowledge, which I'm realizing it doesn't the more I, you know, spend time talking to people like you, because you and I could have this conversation. If I do nothing with what you tell me, then I haven't really learned anything. Right. That's right. That's right. And all this, and that's something that gets easily forgotten, you know, all learning, and all growth ha- happens sort of like photosynthesis. There's a couple of moments in the cycle. It's a loop. You've got an experience, and then you've got to have the reflection piece, right? Experience it, reflect on it, and that changes you. Experience and then reflect. Experience and then reflect. And our world is really good at providing us with experiences. You know, as we've said, it's just like an endless stream of bullet points coming at us, an endless stream of information. But if we don't if we don't carve out and spend time as individuals and as groups uh, in reflection, learning how to press pause and really trying to figure things out together in, a, in an authentic way, um, it becomes really, really hard to navigate that complex landscape. Yeah. Well, I think that makes a, a perfect segue to talking specifically about the culture playbook. So why was this the natural follow-up to the culture code? Why a playbook? After you wrote a book about the code, yeah, I had a really you know writing the culture code was sort of a, a, a fun, life changing experience, and and it's a mix of theory and practice, and it sent me on this journey to visit the top performing groups on the planet, all the stuff that is really fun to do, and it created all these continuing conversations. And during those 
after you launch a book, there's these conversations that happen afterwards. And there was this uh, call that I heard really clearly, like, give us more, like, give us more of the action. Give us more of the cookbook. You've taken us on a tour of the restaurants. Now give us the dish. Now give us the cookbook. And so I set out to write that. And during that time, um, thinking, of course, oh, this will be kind of easy, right? It's a bunch of, you know, it's, it's just, yeah. let's fill it down. Like, every classic mistake. Because the more you actually get into that, the more you really try to understand the culture building process, and especially vividly as we went through COVID and everything else, um, it became really clear that you can't just sort of have a list of recipes. Culture change, any kind of thing where you're trying to get better as a group is a process. It's, It's in a process of experience and reflection. And so the book I ended up writing is much more of a workbook, workshop, there's a, there's a ton of questions in it. The idea is to provide groups with an experience together. The experience of going through this book together and saying, which of these ideas taken from the top performing groups, these are all models. There are all these cool models of how to do it. What's our version of that going to be? And what's stopping us from doing it? And where should we take it next? And so the idea is to, to use the book as kind of this gathering place, this magnet around which people can have these conversations around, how are we going to interrelate? You know, how are we going to, how are we going to get along? What are we going to do when things go bad? How are we going to learn together? What are we going to do if we run into a brick wall to where they can sort of pull out of the, of the sort of fire hose of regular life and, and talk about these questions and use the book as a platform on which to do that. So it ended up being a lot more fun. It also was fun because my daughter Zoe helped with all the illustrations. There's about 70 illustrations in there and she's uh, pretty handy with, uh, with a pen and so we were able to kind of work on that together, which was totally delightful. And uh, like any book project, you sort of set sail and then, um, you know, things things change and evolve. And as it's evolved, here's, you know, the book's now coming out at, at a moment where people are really hungry to have this conversation. So um, it's going to be fun to see where it goes next. Yeah. Well, you open the book by saying that culture is not a gift you receive. It's a skill you learn. And like any skill can be done well or properly, you might start out thinking as many people do that culture is the soft stuff, the warm and fuzzy intangibles. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. How did we end up with this narrative of culture being, you know, sort of the soft stuff? Because that was kind of my first thought too, was, yeah, how do you develop a skill of building a culture? Um, and, you know, I think back to something Sam Altman said when they made their Y Combinator curriculum available. And he said that, uh, you know, uh, Airbnb really nailed it. He said that, and he said this is incredibly hard to do. But he said Brian Chesky, when he would interview people, would ask them, if you only had a year to live, would you still take the job? <laughs> like, because he wanted people that dedicated to the culture of Airbnb. And he said it's very hard to get a culture like that. But just the idea that, it's a skill is something that I think is, is really different than most of us have been taught to believe. Like, why is it that we see it as something soft? Because it feels like something soft. You walk into a winning locker room, a great restaurant, a great school, and you can't, we're wired. It's so culture is so deeply wired into us that we don't notice it. It's sort of like high quality oxygen. Like all of a sudden, oh, I feel energized and I want to hang out here. You know that magnetic feeling you have when you're in a good culture? You just like it. And you're you're aware that something cool is happening and you're aware that everybody's in sync and you're kind of in the presence of a big group brain. But well, how did it get that way, right? It's almost like you're looking at this beautiful rose, a beautiful bouquet of living roses. Um, and you're like, wow, that's beautiful. You're magnetized by the beauty. But what you don't see is the process, the roots, the photosynthesis, the way sunshine churns that chlorophyll out. So that's what this book is about. We're just not built to see underneath because we take these, when someone gives us, you know, the book is really about belonging cues, vulnerability loops, and and these very basic behaviors to where, like, for example, there's a, there's a wonderful experiment that I wrote about um, in the Culture Code where if you have a conversation with a stranger, it's, it, this, the stranger comes up to you. You're on, you're on a platform. You've got your cell phone, right? And the stranger comes up and says, hey, can I borrow your cell phone? You'll say no, like 98% of the time. If the stranger comes up and says, I'm so sorry about the rain. Can I borrow your cell phone? You'll say yes 400% more often, which is 
kind of nuts. We won't notice it, but we'll just feel slightly more warmly toward that person. And we will literally, as a woman named Alison Wood Brooks at Harvard, who did this experiment, we will literally hand them our cell phone 400% more often because they had a behavior, they expressed a sympathetic observation about the weather. And that made us kind of bond with them. And that's exactly the level at which culture happens. It's like under your conscious radar, but you are constantly, constantly tuning in to the fact, am I connected? Am I not? Do I share a future? Do I not? These people care about me or do they not? Do I have a voice here? And when you get a clear signal that the group cares, you respond. And so all of this culture, this, this like, this like, it's kind of this, 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 unconscious brain that we all carry around that is either lighting up or not. And the idea of the book is to say, here's kind of how that brain works. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, so you you actually just, you know, kind of <clears throat> you know, teed up my next question because I was going to ask you about those three key behaviors that you talk about, which form the foundation of the book, but you just mentioned them. So let's 
kind of bucket them because I know you broke them all into a bunch of different tips. Um, but let's start with the first one. You say two things here. You say that psychological safety is powerful because it's personal. You may experience a warm sense of connection and belonging. The person next to you may be experiencing the opposite. As you explore these questions with your group, be sure to keep curiosity, perspective, and empathy foremost in mind. And then you go on to talk about cool kid bias, the misperception that working in the physical office possesses more value, leverage, and impact than remote work. And this bias is natural because it's rooted in our proximity-loving brains, and it's amplified by the assumption that being seen in the office is the best way to move up the ladder. Now, you know, when we talk about psychological safety, it's funny because I'm the guy who has been fired from every real job that I've ever had, hence the reason I do this. And I have this just inherent distrust of authority. Like I always jokingly say, if I got a real job, one of two things would happen. I would either be promoted by the end of the first week or fired on the first day. So how is it that you create a culture where somebody like me, who is already coming in with this idea that, yeah, I don't trust these people. How do you create psychological safety in that situation? Yeah, it's funny. There's a misunderstanding about psychological safety in that it's just about safety, right? Psychological safety is not about just creating these, as one researcher puts it, like swaddling your people in, in, in cotton. It's actually about the opposite. It's actually about voice. And if, if I were going to try to create, and, and maybe you're not mentor with groups, if that's, if that's the way, which is totally, it's the way, um, it's the way a lot of people are really. And, and that's, there's a, there's definitely a, a wonderful world of work for people who, who don't prefer that. But if we were to start a group and wanted you to be in it, I think a smart leader would first ask you and give you voice and figure out ways that you, there's a, <laughs> you reminded me of a, one of my favorite stories about this. There was a, a, a cap, captain of a gunship in the Navy. His name was Mike Abershoff. And he inherited the worst gunship in the Navy, fast, worst performing. Everybody on it was, didn't like to be there. They were a bunch of rebels. And the first thing he did was he spent five minutes with each sailor in his office, asking them a couple questions. Well, if you could change one thing, what would it be? If you change one thing. And whenever anyone gave him an answer that he could immediately implement, the Captain Abershoff grabbed the loudspeaker and announced it. He would announce, lunch begins at 12.30, not 12.15 now. Good idea. Thanks, sailor so-and-so. Boom. And there was this sense immediately of having ownership over the experience of being there. That's a concept in the book I call deep fun. It's when a group takes ownership over what it means to be in that group. And that deep fun is what bonds people to groups, even people who have rebellious, uh, rebellious streaks. There was a company um, in Michigan where the people weren't crazy about the coffee. They, 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 the coffee wasn't that great. And so the leaders did a really smart thing. They said, oh, good, you want to, is anybody interested in improving that? And some people said, yeah. And so they created, they kind of co-created um, this team and their job was to research and deliver the planet's best coffee back to the office. You guys give us the best bean, the best roast, <laughs> the best bean, go do it. And they gave them a decent budget to go do it. Go do it, go get it, guys. And that is actually, you know, and on the one hand, oh, is that just being manipulative? You could say that. Actually, that's probably legit. Like, oh, what a manipulative uh, company that is. On the other hand, if it's done authentically and co-created and not assigned, um, and they really do want better coffee, then say, yeah, go knock yourselves out. Um, we can spend a few hundred bucks on figuring that out and some time. And when you do bring it back, there's going to be this deeper sense of connection. So that's psychological safety. It's deep fun. It's voice not swaddling people in cotton and telling them they're in a safe place. It is, it is sharing the experience of what it is to, to work there. And it goes back to the basic definition of culture. Culture isn't like feeling good. It isn't, um, it isn't happiness. Uh, it isn't uh, frictionless uh, work. It's actually a set of living relationships in pursuit of a goal. And, and getting shoulder to shoulder around the hard stuff is, is the most important part of it. There's, there's sort of a fallacy about great cultures that they're happy, happy places to work. Um, but one of the tips right. I had in the book is, is exactly that. You've got to kind of kill the happy smoothness fallacy because it's actually not about that kind of happiness. It's about being shoulder to shoulder, doing hard stuff with people you admire. That's, that's what good culture is about. Yeah. 
Well, one of the things that you say is that strong cultures possess high levels of collective self-awareness. That is, everyone in the group shares an understanding of the other strengths, tendencies, and habits, which helps drive group performance. And, you know, that struck me because, you know, yeah, I am the host of the podcast, but I also have a team that I work with. Like, we're working on a bunch of other stuff. I have a community manager. So how do you develop that collective self-awareness and then apply it to the projects that you're working on? Yeah. No, what a good yeah, there's, there's, a, there's, there's some ways. I mean, the, mo- the most powerful way that I know, um, and if it's there's one tip in the book that, that people should take away, it's this. It's an AAR, an after-action review. Um, it's an idea from the Navy SEALs and the military. And the concept is immediately after you do something together, you circle up and you talk about three questions. Number one, you talk about what went well. You ask what went well. Number two, you ask what didn't go well. Number three, you talk about what will we do differently next time? And the power of that is it's hard. It's a hard thing to do to circle up after everybody tried their best at something to say, hey, I think I screwed that up, or I think you screwed that up, or I think we're going down the wrong path here, or I think we're going on the right path here. Hard conversation to have. But that conversation and the transparency, the honesty, the authenticity that it generates helps you navigate that landscape together. It gives you going to go back to that image of birds flying through the forest. If you don't know exactly where the tree is and you don't agree on where the tree is and you don't agree on where the rock is and you don't agree on where each other is, if you don't have that situational awareness, it's really hard to be aligned and autonomous and fly. And so this concept of these meetings where we can pause and say, wait a minute, I think we're headed for a rock. Wait a minute, I think we should turn left. What do you see? Where do you think we could be better? What should we do differently? Those are incredibly powerful and they don't take much time. And yet there's this urge when we finish a project with people to immediately just move on to the next thing, like to just high five and move on, right? Hey, nice job, everybody. That was really great. Great teams don't do that. Great cultures don't do that because there's this wonderful learning opportunity immediately after you do something that when you ask what went well, what didn't go well? What can we do differently next time? Uh, you also talk about this distinction between productivity and creativity, which naturally, of course, given that we run the unmistakable creative, that piqued my interest. You say, in essence, there are two types of work, doing regular stuff and making new stuff. If you're seeking to be productive, that is to do the regular stuff, working remotely has been shown to be more effective and efficient than working in person. However, if you're looking to innovate, that is to invent new stuff, it's far more effective to invest in physical togetherness. Now, you know, obviously, when you're operating a small team like I do, we don't have an Airbnb type budget and getting together in person isn't as easy. Um, how do we how do we apply that? How do we think about that in, in yeah, the context of what a, you just a, said? There's a few things. I mean, and, and one is that the, the advantage of proximity and creativity is not like small. It's pretty big. There was one study that showed that people, when they're proximate with each other, will discuss a problem eight times more often than if they're not. And because you're bumping each other, because you're swirling around each other like noodles in a cook pot, bumping in, you get more creativity out of that. So prioritizing that. The idea that I would throw out would be the idea of of toggling, where for certain gatherings, and there's a company called Articulate that has been in this for years, um, they will, you'll, you'll spend the money to find a centrally located place and be together for a few days. Half of it is work related, half of it is just relationship fun. And prioritizing that, getting on a tempo with that, co-creating the, a schedule where you're doing that. And then in the other time when you're executing, then having a decision sheet that everybody can log into asynchronously and using on, you know, using online tools and connecting about calibration and alignment, all of those things can happen. But you, if you're going to take on hard problems, it's hard creative problems. It's really hard to do that unless you are together. Um, and so that's the idea behind the buckets to actually really be intentional about, okay, what are we trying to do here? And this is what the remote work has, is now requiring of us. And it cuts back to our original conversation about, you know, command and control versus a little more creativity. At the heart of creativity is awareness, is realizing, oh, if we want to get where we want to go, we need to operate in a different way. Uh, we need to be intentional. It's tempting when we talk about creativity to try to leave things 
you know, it's, it's creativity. There should be no boundaries. It should be very loose and flowing. And that's not actually true. That's not how good creative people operate. Um, I think good creative people operate with a lot of intention around their process. And working remotely requires us, I think, to raise the bar on our level of intention of the work that we're going to do together. So this is kind of a a random question. What implications do you think uh, something like virtual reality will have for this? I don't have a clue. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it depends <laughs> if it is realistic enough to fool our brains. And, and it takes a lot to fool our brains. This uncanny valley stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm creeped out by it. I don't think, I think people who are attracted to it, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe we'll all be there in, in 10 years. But, um, I find it kind of hard to believe, um, that it will be be anywhere near as good as actually being together. You know, we've got, we've, our minds are pretty ancient technology and they work pretty well. Um, and the idea of disembodying them, um, to have them bump into each other, seems like, um, I don't know, to me, I don't think it's going to work. Well, it, you know, it's funny because I, I have an Oculus and I, I you know, I'm, I'm kind of bullish on some of the things that are possible with it. Uh, just having played with it, um, I think it will change online learning a lot and make it much more interactive. But I, I have never saw it as a substitute for in-person relationships. So my, my old roommate and I have this debate. He's like, this is going to cause people to sit at home and never leave their house. And I said, I actually think it's going to get people to see each other in person more. Maybe so. I know this is a, this is the great experiment, right? I mean, it's going to be super. Yeah interesting. The only thing that it worries me about this experiment is that it's being led, funded, and driven by people who have zero social skills. And and that's sort of <laughs> Facebook. Way, right? Yes. I'm thinking of yeah, specifically yeah. somebody in particular at Facebook. When you see them interact, it's something that's humanoid. Like I think it's humanoid, but I don't think it's very human. Um, and I think that's been a huge um, you know, we we're seeing the drawback of that lack of intuition, that lack of vulnerability, that lack of of, of honesty um, in some of that community. And it, it really does have severe consequences because they're building the platforms on which we're interacting. Yeah. Let's talk about vul- vulnerability loops. You say vulnerability loops happen when two or more people come together to admit they don't know the answers, to share weakness, so they're based on powerful psychological truth. When people take interpersonal risks together, they connect and cooperate far more deeply. And I think that what's interesting about public vulnerability in particular is that I feel like a lot of people, myself included, have confused, you know, sort of airing their dirty laundry in public with public vulnerability. I remember we had a guy here who wrote a book, uh, I don't remember the title of the book. It was about how the most powerful people from Washington to Wall Street to Hollywood make people like them. And he said, like, when you're in the public eye, you actually have to filter to some degree what you choose to say, because the reality is, if you're the president of the United States, your words have a much greater impact on what people do than if it's just somebody like you and me. I mean, I, I learned this from you know being on a reality TV show. My cousin said, look. Anybody can make you look like a jackass in editing. Your job is to give them zero ammo to do that. And so I intentionally was very careful about what I said. And at the same time, to your point, like, where do you find that line of, okay, what is an appropriate level of vulnerability in the workplace and what's not? Yeah, I think what's not is, is, and it depends in context here, obviously. There's no, there are a million different contexts here. Um, I rather, there's a lot of ways to be badly vulnerable. Um, and actually I, I bumped into a, a guy who, who works for a big tech company. He's been in some interesting rooms and he said that there are consultants, uh, training and helping CEOs to cry on camera. They'll be doing takes of like a video to show everybody. And they'll say like, do it again, but can you do it with a, more emotion? Like if you were to well up, that would be really good. So this is some like crazy Orwellian, um, you know, attempt to attempt to connect via, I would call it, you know, manipulative vulnerability. Um, and I think people see right through it. The true vulnerability that works in a work contest is vulnerability that's built on learning. It's built on trying to be a little better. I saw a beautiful example of it or heard about a beautiful example of it at, at Pixar. Ed Catmull is the president and CEO of Pixar. 
And there was one day 15 years ago where he was standing next to a team of young engineers who were all working on something. And like anybody, when the boss is standing there kind of watching you work, you get kind of nervous. And at the end, Ed Catmull walked up to one of them and said, hey, when you guys are done here, could you come up to my office and teach me how to do that? incredible curiosity, incredible willingness to learn. He wasn't giving him feedback. He was trying to get better. Um, and I talked to the engineer who that happened to 15 years later, the guy still got goosebumps about it. Having people want to learn from you is, is really, really powerful. And most of us, um, it brings us in a deeper connection. And in, in all good cultures that I see, there's that, that root curiosity that's, that's built also with some care about their, in the relationship. But they're just, if it's a huge success, they're wondering, huh, wonder where that came from. If it's a huge failure, same thing. Turn toward the failure with saying, what's, what happened there? Let's get better together. And so that's the kind of vulnerability that, that I think creates great culture, not ones that are like, you know, where we're, you know, talking about the skeletons in our closet or our deepest fears. Um, that can have a place in group life for sure. But um, when it comes to, to groups that want to perform, I think that curiosity that about how can we get a little better today than we were yesterday? And how can we get a little better tomorrow? Those are the questions that really drive behavior. Yeah. Well, there are a few final ideas that I, I want to go over. Um, one was what you called the, the failure wall. And then let's talk about the, the stories and then, um, you know, what you call the purpose mantras with, you know, different kinds of things we can do, like the yearbook, the biography and all that, all that other. Uh, and then there's one more, the mantra manual, the yearbook and the biography. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. These are all sort of ways in which, you know, it's funny, you would, you'd sort of think, you know, that good, great cultures don't talk about themselves a lot. You'd sort of think good, great cultures, you know, they just, they kind of know what their purpose is in their heart, right? They know what it is. And you'd be wrong. One mark of good culture is that when you're in it, it's kind of overwhelming. The language they use, the corny mantras they use, the symbols they use, the artifacts that are around. Walk into Pixar, walk into Navy SEAL Team 6. There's, there's this continual sense that we're going to tell our story and we're going to tell it over and over and over again. And these these sort of ways. I mean, sometimes it's a culture deck. Sometimes it's a culture book. Sometimes it's a set of mantras that they sort of co-create together to say, um, to, they capture in some way um, the personality, the curiosity, the, the texture of the group. Um, and so all of these, and I give a few suggestions in the book, different ways that people can do that. All those are ways of kind of taking the, the story of your group. And story is like the strongest drug in the universe, right? It is, it is something that activates our entire brain. It's 22 times stickier, according to one study, than just information. Um, so if, if you want to sort of capture your group in some ways, you've really got to give a sense that how are we going to use our story? How are we going to tell our story? How are we going to capture our story? I was just at a, uh, at a gathering of a big tech company and they broke into small groups and they were all writing their own mantras, right? And they were all coming up with the little phrases. And it was amazing how many of them, they didn't have to invent them because they were already kind of in the oxygen. And one of them, one of the mantras that one group came up with was do epic shit. And it's like a dumb thing to say in some ways, right? Like, you know, do epic shit. Like they sound like they're a bunch of a mogul skiers or something. Um, but man, did that resonate with that group. That really captured the the texture, the stories that you could connect to that, the personalities that you could connect to that. Um, language and story is incredibly powerful, and smart groups are aware of that and are continually reflecting their own story back on the own group, back on their own group as a north star, as saying, "This is what we look like at our best." Um, let's what's stopping us from being at our best? Let's name those things so that we can be those things. Mm -hmm. um, you also talk about the three types of stories, right? Crisis stories, purpose stories, or, or four types of stories, virtue stories, and impact stories. Can you explain what those are to people? Yeah, you know, and, and each is different sort of species, right? All stories are not created equal. When, when you've got, you know, most, <laughs> most good things are formulated uh, at some point in a crisis. You can go to any group, any great culture you can name. And actually, if you scroll back in time, I'm, I would bet a uh, hundred bucks that you'll find some crisis story, some story where 
you know, uh, with Pixar, it's when they tried to make a straight to video movie and it was kind of a disaster and they realized we're, this is like B level work. We're just trying to do this, this sort of transactional quick movie and we're trying to knock it out and kind of capitalize on this. And they realized as was captured in one of the mantras, B level work is bad for the soul. And they started these whole new set of structures and processes. They called it the Brain Trust, a group of people that came together to review drafts of the movie. And they, because of the crisis, if they hadn't had this crisis, they would not have developed the clarity of purpose and the types of, I would say, vulnerability loops, ways of interacting, structures of wrestling with the material that made them Pixar. So finding that crisis story and really telling it and spotlighting it can help orient people toward the power, the power of what you've built. You know, virtue stories are sort of a similar thing, but you're looking back in time to find the people who embody most clearly the personality of the group. Um, Delta Airlines had a legendary leader, and they sort of keep his desk, almost like it's George Washington's desk or something, and they use that desk as kind of a totem to talk about the values that this person had. Um, and there's there's other different sort of types of stories but but the idea is that your story is your fuel and it's also your 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 map um and and finding that or reflecting it most of us go through life sort of treating stories as stuff that's just sort of random right it's in the air oh i heard a story the other day and that's interesting and we don't bring a lot of intention to it we don't treat it like it's like it's a powerful thing um and I think in good cultures, you have uh, a different sort of awareness around it. Treat them, treat stories as something that, that can be harvested, that can be uh, dispersed and shared. Um, there's, there's some companies that have a, a cool meeting every once in a while. It's called a CSWD. It stands for Cool Stuff We Do. And it's a way of just kind of coming together and let's, let's talk about these cool things that are happening in our, in our ecosystem that maybe people haven't heard of. And in elevating those in, oh, those stories of, oh, you wouldn't believe this guy came in at midnight and invented this cool new app. And these, this guy helped this person solve this problem. And, and she, um, you know, brought tea to a sick teammate at, at, at last weekend, whatever that might be, um, finding ways to sort of capture it, share it and, uh, and, and celebrate it. Yeah. So there's one, uh, final thing that I wanted to go over and, this is you know, one of those things that really struck me. Uh, you said if you're around high-performing teams, you'll notice that they possess a dual focus. Half of their attention is firmly on the project at hand, while the other keeps a sharp eye on the team's inner workings. Like race car drivers, they make regular pit stops to tune the group's engine and fill its fuel tanks. And it you know, it made me think of uh, Dan Heath's book, Upstream. Think, I think it's called, yeah, Upstream, and which is all about trying to you know, prevent problems before they occur. Because what I noticed as I was reading that book was how right he was about the fact that we tend to be largely reactive when it comes to problems instead of being proactive to prevent them. So how do we do that? Well, a couple of ways. I mean, one is, is uh, the, the beauty of the tune-up, the beauty of the tune-up is that it's divided up into three different things. This is an idea that comes from IDEO design firm. A lot of times you put together a team on a project, and they just start working on the project, right? What they do is they pause. They realize this is a trip we're taking together. We should have a pre-flight meeting, a mid-flight meeting, and a post-flight meeting. And in each of them, you sort of zoom out and ask big, dumb questions like, what's going to stop us here? What are five things? If we this fails, this is always a beautiful question, the pre-mortem. If this fails a year from now, what will have caused that? Ask that question. What would have caused it? And pre-identify what those obstacles are going to be. What relationships are most important in getting right on our team? What are you guys most excited and joyful about, about on this project? What are you most curious to learn? Asking those questions, getting answers to those. In mid-flight, you do a similar thing where you pull out of the work itself and turn your attention toward the workings of the team. How's it going? Are the relationships that need to be good, good? Are the problems we thought were the problems still the problems? What new problems have come up? And so on and so forth. Pull out and navigate. Pull out and navigate. Tune. And that is 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 the power of reflection um and and really again that's this this uh it's called the playbook but it could be called the pause book this idea that that investment that you make in the tune-up that investment that you make in the pause is 
is an investment. It, it makes you faster, stronger, better, closer, uh, more able to fly through this complex landscape without losing touch with your teammates and without losing touch with the project. Amazing. Uh, well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative, which I know I've asked you before. It's always interesting to see how people answer this question when they come back. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, I think it's impact. Um, I, I think it's their impact on others. I think it, it, uh, at the end of the day, we don't know how big our impact's going to be or or where it's going to be. Um, but I think their their you know impact requires um, connection. It requires uh, a little bit of connection to something bigger than just information. It has to have some some impact on someone's identity and the way they see the world. And if you can change the way someone sees the world, you've had an impact. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your stories, your your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else you're up to? Yeah, danielcoyle.com, C-O-Y-L-E. That's me. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.